Well, if you would, turn to uh, Romans chapter 2, if you haven't already. We're going to start in verse uh, 17, Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. We're going to finish up the second half of this chapter here this morning to get kind of uh, maybe our mindset uh, about this passage there was a story I heard some time ago, and it goes like this. There was a, a family, a married couple, and they had a, one son named Matthew. And Matthew uh, grew up in his grew up normal life, normal guy, normal kid, normal teenager. But when he got to 12th grade, things began to, to change. And there were some significant changes. Uh, his grades began to slip. They were really, really getting bad. He would come home and say to his parents things like, everybody's talking about me, or nobody likes me. And this went on for a while, and the parents got really concerned about what they were hearing and what they were seeing in their son. And so they, they brought him to the doctor to have him checked out and, and to look at. Look at. And they ran their tests, and the doctors came in, and they sat the parents down, and uh, they said, this is what we've discovered about your son, Matthew. He has a, a thought disorder, which is another way of saying that, that, that he, they say that he has a form of schizophrenia. And the father heard this news that was delivered to him, this horrible news that was given to him, and he just began uh, to weep. I mean, it was the last thing you want to hear as a parent. As we move into this passage in Romans uh, chapter 2, it kind of has the feel of, of Paul sitting us down again and saying, I've, I've got bad news for you. I, I've got things I want to share with you that you are just not going to want to hear, that you're going to be resistant to hearing. If you really take in the, these words and what I'm, what I'm saying to you, you're, you're just going to be this pushback because Paul is still talking about the bad news of the gospel. I know we talked about this last week and a little bit the week before, that he's beginning this, this, this message, this letter, by identifying the bad news. And he does that for a number of reasons. Uh, for one, if the, if the good news is really going to be good for us, we've got to know the bad news. For the good news to be something far more than something that's sentimental and something that's, that's really sweet and that's really kind of God to do that, We've got to understand the bad news. We've got to understand who we really are before this holy God. And the other reason that Paul, I think, is spending time talking about the bad news is we love to avoid sin. We love to avoid it in the sense of we don't want to talk about it. Uh, we want to excuse our behavior, excuse our attitude with, I was tired, or it's really complicated, or you just don't understand my circumstances. Or you don't understand this relationship that I'm in. We love to, to dodge and, and, and move away from it and not really think for ourselves, this is who we really are. And, and Paul in this passage is inviting us to consider. He's inviting us, are you willing to consider the bad news of your life so that you can really hear and really embrace uh, the good news Having said that, let's, let's stand and read, let's stand together and hear God's Word. Uh, Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Let's hear God's Word to us. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know His will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, 
If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say to the pe- that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you've become as though you, as though you have not been circumcised. So then... If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Will you pray with me? Father God, we uh, pray as we hear these words that you would teach and instruct us Many of us are coming from difficult weeks. Many of us are in the the midst of difficult situations and circumstances, whether it's just feeling alone and isolated, or it's feeling overwhelmed, or busyness, or just bored. We pray that you would speak into our hearts and our lives, that your word would teach us, and that you would shape us as the people of God. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Would you please be seated? Let me see if I can frame this uh, passage uh, like this. That Paul, in the end of chapter 1 and uh, here in chapter 2, and if you were with us on Wednesday, this past Wednesday night, uh, we, we talked about this a little bit. Paul's talking about two different individuals. And maybe a, the best way to... Uh, identify these kind of individuals is think of the, the parable of the prodigal son. You remember this parable in Luke chapter 15? Jesus talking about two sons. He had one son who was known as reckless lawbreaker. He's the one that went to his father and said, you know, give me my inheritance now so I can go and, and live my life the way I want to live it. And that's what happens. He gets his stuff. He gets his money. And he comes back home. And that's when we're introduced to the older brother, the, the other brother that's there. And this is the, the brother that stayed home. This is the brother that follows the rules, that keeps the law, so to speak. He's the one that's doing what he's supposed to do, and he's upset with his father for how he has received this younger brother back who has done all this reckless stuff, lived this reckless lifestyle. How could he allow him to come back like he has? How can he be celebrating uh, this son like he's been doing? Those two brothers represent two types of individuals that we're seeing here in the book of of Romans here in the the beginning. We saw that the younger brother, the prodigal son, the one that in the end of chapter 1, where Paul talks about the individual who has 
there's a, there's a knowledge of God out there and they have suppressed the truth of God and they decided instead of worshiping God the creator I'm going to worship creation which is a, basically a way of saying I want to live the life I want to live how I want to live it I'm suppressing that truth and I want to live that way that's the, the, the one way that the prodigal son kind of way of living but in chapter 2 here I saw glimpses of it last week, and we're seeing it uh, more so this morning. We're seeing that the older brother, the one that's a legalist, the one that's the, the law keeper, the, the one that clings to his status as the basis of his acceptance. And the individual I think Paul is, is describing here is what I want to call as the, the moralist or the religious moralist. And Paul is saying to that individual that you are just as bad off as the Gentile who has suppressed the truth and done his own thing. You're just as bad off because like him, you're not basing your salvation, your acceptance with God on what Christ has done for you, but you're basing your acceptance with God on what you do for him. And in this case, your status and who you are. As we move through this passage, I think it'll make a little bit more sense. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the characteristics of the moralist. What does he look like? How does this passage help us to see that? What are the failures of the moralist? And then what's the hope? What's the hope uh, that, that we have that we find in this passage? So first, the, the characteristics. There's two. The first is this. The moralist has a general interest in the truth. The moralist has a general interest in the truth. I mean, the Jews were instructed in the law. They, they were taught the law. They grew up with the law. Uh, they would talk about it. They would repeat it. They would talk about it in all these general ways, but not in a way that applied to themselves. We can do the same thing uh, today. We can talk about the Bible, talk about uh, stories that we find in the Bible, talk about doctrine. We can talk about theology. We can argue points of this or that, but we keep it on a, on a general level. We don't uh, take it to the next step, so to speak, and let it uh, do a work in our hearts and in our lives. It, maybe it'll come out in the church like this. Uh, you grow up in the church. Uh, you come to the point where it's like you understand the gospel, and uh, you understand Christ, and he paid the, the debt of my sin. He died in my place. And you become a Christian, put your faith and trust uh, in him, and it just kind of ends there. You still have an interest in God, there's still an interest in, in church and all those, those general things, but it's kept at a surface kind of level. There's no digging in more so, there's no, no more going to a, a deeper level, because well, I've, God has saved me and my sins are forgiven and it just kind of rests there it just kind of stops there issues about uh, growing in a prayer life or uh, thinking about uh, the teaching of scripture and what this or that means it just kind of ends and there's no real application another characteristic of the religious moralist is superiority superiority we don't do it as, as much, but often uh, Janelle used to watch HDTV, flip on that, that channel. And every show is about making something that looks like a disaster and making it into something really nice. 
about repurposing something. Those were the shows that we, episodes that we really uh, enjoyed. When we lived in Mississippi, our neighbor across the street had put up a new fence. And of course, he took down the old fence that he had, and it was this kind of cypress uh, wood, these planks. And uh, we saw that wood, and we've been kind of on this HGTV kind of mode, and we said, we can do something with that. And so I grabbed some of those sheets from the trash pile, and I cut two pieces about 17 inches long, and then I would glue them together. So you had this piece of wood that was about, I don't know, 12 inches wide or so, 17 inches long. And my wife took it from there, and she would draw some words on it, like trust and obey, or some words from a hymn or a Bible passage in a real kind of nice kind of font. And I put a picture hanger on the back, and we gave it to some friends as a gift, something they could hang on the wall. We took that old rotten, or about to be rotten wood, and we repurposed it for something else. That's kind of what the Jews have done. They've repurposed uh, their calling on themselves for something to be something that, that God didn't intend it uh, to be for them. Uh, they were God's people. They were the nation that God had drawn to himself, called to himself. But that wasn't all that was to be used of them. It was much more than that. Sure, they had the law. Sure, they had God's attention and God's protection and, and care. But they were to be much more than that. They were to be a blessing to other people. They were to be a witness to other nations, to other individuals of who God is and what he's able to do. They've repurposed themselves is what we see in this passage. Maybe you remember the parable in Luke chapter 18 where you had the parable of the Pharisee and the, the tax collector and they're both in the temple and they're, they're both praying. How does the Pharisee pray? He says, God, thank you that I'm not like other men, even like this tax collector. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm, because of my status, because I am a Jew, because I'm part of God's covenant people, I am better than these people. And that's what Paul is, is getting onto them for. Uh, if, the, if the Jew is going to sit there and say, and, and hear some, at least here partway through chapter 1, and hear about sin and how, how bad things are, certainly Paul is pushing back on the Jew that's going to stand there and say, well, Paul, certainly you're not talking about us because we have the law. Uh, we, have the, we belong to God. We're God's covenant people. We have circumcision. We have all these things. And Paul says, yes, I'm talking to you as well because you've taken that law, you've taken your status, and you've repurposed it for something that it wasn't meant to be. My question for you is, as you think about your life, as you think about uh, the church, and as you think about uh, God in your life, are you falling into the trap of trusting in Christianity or are you trusting in Christ? The Jews had fallen in the trap of this is who we are, this is our status, you love us, we're accepted, we're good because we have the law. Are you falling into the trap of thinking, I belong to Christianity, so I'm safe? where we should be falling into the trap of, I belong to Christ. Christ is my own. I belong to Him, and therefore I'm safe with Him. The second thing, the failures of the moralist, the, the failures of the moralist, can be summed up in one word, hypocrisy. And you see it from the list that starts out in verse 21 
you teach others, do you teach yourself? You preach against stealing, do you steal? You say not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You think about that first question that Paul asked there. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And what's he talking at? What's he talk, Paul's talking about? He's getting at that this is, do you remember the role of the law in your life? Do you remember its, its purpose in your life is to teach you? It's for, for you to come underneath its authority, for you to, to submit yourself to that truth, for you to, to open up the word and in, in say, in effect, I, I do this, I don't do that, I fail in that area, I really need to do better there, I really need to see more of this happening here. In other words, that, that part of the, the use of the law in our life is, is like a hammer that we use on ourselves to, to point out where we fall short. And what, the, what Paul is getting at, I think, with the Jews is he's saying, you've taken that hammer of the law, and you're not using it on yourself, but you're using it exclusively on other people. You've put yourself in a position where you're above that teaching, above those things, where you're not submitting yourself to it. My point is this. It's one thing to believe the concepts of the Bible. It's one thing to believe the truths of the Bible. It's another thing to put yourself underneath the authority and submit yourself to those principles and to those laws. You move on in the text. Paul asks these questions. Uh, While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't say to them, look, I know you're stealing. Look, I know you're an adulterer. Look, I know you're doing this. I know you're doing that. But instead, he uses a different technique, if you will. Instead of accusing them and making uh, statements about them, he asks them questions. He says, you preach about not stealing, but are are you stealing? Are you doing these things yourself? What's he doing? He's trying to get to the point of conviction because conviction is going to bring about greater change than simply uh, stating something. In other words, he's getting them to the point where they've got to see that this is true of themselves. To get to the point where they have this conviction about it themselves. It's similar to what we talked about uh, last week. Last week we talked about how we all have this standard of of life, the standard of, of ethics or behavior. And we take this standard and we place it on top of other people and we judge them by it. You should be doing this. You should be raising your kids like this. This is how you should spend your money. This, this, and this, and this. We have this standard, but do we keep that standard ourselves? If we were to be judged by that standard we hold with other people, could we hold to that? And in a similar way, we see that that's what Paul is driving at here. And then he makes this, I think, very convicting and cutting statement in verse 24 he says, as it is written, God's name is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. What's he saying there? He's saying that the Gentiles see you. They know who you are, that you are not fooling them. They, they see who you really are, and they don't want to be around you. They, they don't want to believe the things that you believe in. They don't want to live the way that you live because they see how empty it is. They see how inconsistent it is. They see how hypocritical it really is. If this is how bad things are, if this is, is Paul getting them to see their real need, where's the hope? What is the hope that we have here? Verses 28 and 29. 
A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. What does he mean here? Why is he bringing in circumcision as a, as a means to communicate what needs to be happening in our lives, as a way to, to share us and get us to the point of hope? Now think about this. Remember circumcision in the Old Testament. It was a big deal. God comes to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want to be in a covenant relationship with you. I want to be in a special relationship with you. I'm going to use you. I'm going to, to bless you and your offspring. It's going to be great. It's, the amazing things are going to happen. And as a sign of that relationship, they were circumcised. Abraham and his family and, and generations after that, him were circumcised. It was a sign of being in that relationship with God. And it pointed to something deeper as well. Because Abraham, or God was saying to Abraham, you know, I want you to, to be in this relationship with me. I want you to walk before me and be, and be blameless and follow me completely and, and faithfully. This, this call to obedience, this call to righteousness. And if you fail that, if you fail to follow my commandments, if you fail to follow uh, what is required of you, you are going to be cut off. You'll be cut off from my people, cut off from uh, the people of God, uh, kicked out, uh, so to speak. And so we see circumcision as an acting out of what would happen if you failed to keep the covenant, if you failed to keep uh, what's required of you to be in a relationship with God, you would be cut off. Now, fast forward uh, to what Paul says in, in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 11. He says this, he says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That last phrase there, the circumcision of Christ. What is that circumcision of Christ? In a nutshell, it's the cross. The cross is that circumcision of Christ. Think about this. Here's Christ. He comes along and he fulfills the law. He keeps all the commandments. He loves God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loves his neighbor perfectly, even to the point of death and death on a cross. He fulfills and keeps the law but he also takes upon himself what? The curse of the law. That's what the cross is. He's getting the curse of the law for us. The curse is what? Being cut off, being cut away from God. And on the cross, he is cut off for us. Think about what was said about the, the Messiah in, in, he, in Isaiah 53, for example. Uh, Isaiah says that he was cut off from the land of the living and stricken for the transgressions of his people. What does Jesus famously say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an indication of that covenant, of that circumcision being cut off. That Christ was cut off for us. That he took the curse of the covenant, the curse uh, of our wrongdoing. There's something else from this uh, Colossians passage. Paul writes, in him you were circumcised not a circumcision made with hands. 
And he's pointing to something that's inward. He's pointing to an inward circumcision of the heart. God circumcising our hearts. God changing our hearts. A couple of verses from the Old Testament to back this up a little bit. Uh, In Deuteronomy, Moses says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with that you may live. He's pointing something that internally changes within us. In Ezekiel 36, And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In the New Testament, we call this being born again. That when you put your faith and trust in Christ, when you recognize that Christ uh, lived the perfect life and he took the curse or the punishment that we deserve, that God circumcises our hearts, that God gives us a new heart, that there is a new birth going on. There's a new life that's going on. Do you get that? Do 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 you see that? Do you understand the reality of that? Because it's, it's, it means that there's a change in our relationship to God and His law and His statutes and what He requires of us. No wonder do, do we look at these laws and we think, you know, I'm a Christian now. I've been saved. It doesn't matter how I lived. It's all about grace. It's all about forgiveness. Christ died for me. There, there's a new relationship to it. There's a new relationship to those commandments. No longer we look at those things and we, and we say with indifference, but we look at those things with love. Because the reality is, God, you have accepted me, you loved me, you died for me, you thought of me. In the midst of all my sin and all my brokenness, and because you did that for me, I want to follow you, I want to love you, I want to trust you. In other words, we obey, we take these commandments into our lives because he has accepted us, not to get any kind of acceptance. We don't look at the law and think, gosh, this is just so crushing this is weighty. I can never do this. I can never do that. I'm just going to ignore it all and just kind of go with the flow and just kind of fake it. But we look at the law in a different way. We look at God's commandments. We look at God's word in a different way. I, I want to know more deeply and richly the God who loved me and died for me. My question for you, and I'm going to close in prayer, is this. How do you see the church in your life? How do you think about coming to church is it an obligation? Uh, I got to get dressed up. I got to put on my Sunday clothes. I got to come here. And it's just it's something I want to do, something I want to do to check off my list so I can go about the rest of my day. Or do you see it as something you need? Something that's necessary for you? Because you realize Christ has died for me. He's done all these things for me. I know I belong to him. I want to bring him glory and honor. I want to bring him praise. I want to be renewed. I want to be strengthened. I want to know him more. What is Christianity to you? Is it something that's more of an obligation, a weight that's on your shoulders? Or is it something that strengthens your heart and gives you life because of the reality of what God has done for us? Would you pray with me? Father God, we need your truth and we need the gospel we need the good news but we hate talking about the bad news father god we're not here to 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 beat ourselves up 
and to be full of self-pity and woe is me or to make excuses, but we're here to, to see the reality of who you are and what you have done for us, that the weight and significance of it all, that the God of the universe would come and walk among us, live the life he lived, and die the death that he died. Pray that the, the, the good news of that would sink in and that you would renew us and strengthen us and that you would give us this circumcision of the heart, giving us new life in you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.